Welcome to Timeless Truth with Pastor Jim Thomas, a resource of the Village Chapel in Nashville, Tennessee. This week in our study of the Apostle Paul's letter to the Ephesians, we'll be giving our attention to chapter 5. To find studies on other books of the Bible, you can search our entire sermon library at thevillagechapel.com resources. Our hope is that these studies will equip us to think more biblically in all categories of life. Now, here's Pastor Jim. Good day, folks. Pastor Jim Thomas from the Village Chapel here in Nashville, Tennessee, with your daily devotion. We're walking through Ephesians and we're coming to the end of chapter five. And I got to tell you, this is one of those times where I wish I had an hour, maybe two, maybe a, a weekend where we could go over some of this material. Let me read the text. I'm going to look at verses 21 through 33. So from kind of the middle of the chapter all the way through to the end. I think when you hear this text, you're going to have a couple questions. So um, get ready. Here we go. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does, the church, because we are members of his body. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each individual among you also love his own wife, even as himself, and let the wife see to it that she respect her husband. And that's the end of uh, verse 33 there at the end of chapter 5. All right, now, if you don't have any questions, I'm going to be pretty safe in saying you weren't really listening. Um, I'm not sure you were paying close attention at all. Did Paul say what it sounds like he was saying? Was Paul prescribing that marriage sets up husbands as tyrants and their wives as the live-in housekeeping staff? What exactly did Paul mean that wives are to submit to their husbands as to the Lord? We cannot ignore the fact that this passage has been both misinterpreted and misapplied, misused over the years. Most of the time, I think it's been done as a power play disguised as a means of faithfulness to supposed scriptural imperatives. But we've got to figure that out and get that straight because to apply it, you got to first interpret it right. Paul wrote within a cultural context when he wrote this letter. 
and for all of his other letters as well. However, we cannot claim, therefore, that Paul's letters should just all be dismissed as outdated and irrelevant to our contemporary situations. We believe the Word of God contains timeless truths that can apply to our time, to our relationships, to our marriages, and to our families. Let me just articulate a few of those. Um, And I'm going to read also from a couple of other wise, sage-like Bible uh, teachers that I just really respect and who've given great deal of thought to this passage. So to, in a short amount of time that I have, just the 15 or 20 minutes that we have together, hopefully we'll be able to get to the essence of what is here. Um, from, from my own perspective, as we come to these verses, I think it's always good to remember that Paul did write uh, within a very real space-time cultural context. So to get the timeless truths, uh, we've got to look for godly guidance more than mere rules to follow. I think that happens uh, and leads to a lot of uh, theological mischief and practical mischief in our relationships. We're looking for rules to follow, and so we we quickly try to apply this or that that Paul says, just one phrase, and we might lift it out of context and then apply it to our own uh, life situation, our own relationships, or worse, to someone else and try and impose that upon them. So I think it's important to begin looking for those timeless truths, the sort of principles behind, the, the guiding principles of Scripture that, are, that would have more of a timeless application rather than an immediate rule to follow, a template that I can put over top of everything. And I, I know as a pastor, every time I talk to couples that are about to get married, um, one of the first things I have to say to them is that um, there are some great guidelines in Scripture Um, but there isn't a template I can sort of give them that will work for every single uh, marriage relationship in our own day and time. Paul didn't talk about, you know, who's supposed to vacuum the house, and Paul didn't talk about who's supposed to balance the checkbook, and there are a lot of things that are not addressed here, but there are some really great godly governing principles that I think can help us. Secondly, from my perspective, Paul's instructions regarding familial relationships, and he goes on to more, by the way. This is sort of the beginning of that. He's going to talk about parents and children as well as um, uh, in the the parlance of his own day and time, um, uh, slaves or servants, uh, household servants, if you will, and those Uh, who were their masters. So I think this is all really important. Paul's instructions, though, regarding familial relationships and house codes that we find here in Ephesians 5, 21 to 33, are that all believers, the context began with verse 21, all believers are to be in submission to one another and to Christ. So it starts there. You got to begin there that we're all subject to and submitted to Christ in the first place, husband or wife, doesn't matter. We're all in submission to Christ. And third point I would make is that whenever Christ is preeminent in our thinking like that, uh, it will make us better family members. There's no question whether we're husbands or wives. uh, And we'll see that even as we move on to the other familial relationships, parents, children, whenever Christ is first, whenever we keep him preeminent, that makes us better husbands, better wives, better parents, better children, better sons and daughter, whatever you want to call it, all right? Um, fourthly, I think this passage is a call for spirit-filled Christian wives 
to submit to their husbands and for spirit-filled Christian husbands to lay down their lives in loving service to their wives, just as, because the, the comparison is, just as Christ loves the church. And in some ways, I think you can make the argument that the, the, the more difficult calling, part of that calling is actually what Christ does for the church. He's laying down his life for the church. And um, in some ways, and I know that's easier for me to say than perhaps for a woman, but I had a great talk with Kim before I came to do this. And uh, I want you to know um, she is wise uh, beyond her years, to be sure. We've been married 45 years this year, so um, we're starting to figure out some of the right questions to ask. I know you thought I was going to say we had the answers, but no, we're starting to learn some of the questions. N.T. Wright has got a, a short, a brief uh, commentary on uh, the prison letters, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. And in his uh, commentary on this particular passage, I thought this was interesting. He said, for Paul to tell wives to be subject to husbands looks to many like an unfortunate social or cultural gaffe. People who cheerfully ignore traditional morality and believe in freedom of expression suddenly become heavily moralistic and say that passages like this are wicked and shouldn't even be read aloud. But as so often when reading the Bible, there's a lot to be said for checking our natural and, let's admit it, our sometimes aggressive attitude to passages that strike us as objectionable and for thinking through why we react like this and whether we have really understood the passage or not. And I think he's onto something there. The fascinating thing here, N.T. Wright says, is that Paul has a quite different way of going about addressing the problem of gender roles. He insists that the husband should take as his role model not the typical bossy or bullying male of the modern or indeed the ancient stereotype, but rather Jesus himself. But you say Jesus wasn't married. No, but throughout this letter, Paul has spoken of the church as the body of the Messiah or the Christ. And now he produces a new twist from within this theme. The church is the bride of Messiah, the wife of the king. The church became the Messiah's bride, not by being dragged off unwillingly by force, but because he gave himself totally and utterly for her. There was nothing that love uh, that love could do for the Messiah's people that he did not do. Although the crucifixion plays a central role in Paul's thought in almost every topic, nowhere else outside this passage is it so lyrically described as an act of complete self-abandoning love. Paul, of course, lived in a world where women were not only regarded as lesser beings, but as often as not as impure. Their regular bodily functions were deemed to make them dangerous for a man who wanted to maintain his own purity. Paul sees the action of Jesus and by the parallel he has set up the action of the husband as taking the responsibility to bring the wife into full purity instead of rejecting the wife at times of technical impurity. The husband is to cherish and take care of her, to look after her, to let her know at all times that she is loved and valued. If husbands, not least 
Christian husbands had even attempted to live up to this wonderful ideal, there would be a lot less grumbling about bossy or bullying men in the world today. Paul assumes, as do most cultures, that there are significant differences between men and women, differences that go far beyond the mere biological and reproductive function. Their relations and roles must therefore be mutually complementary rather than identical. Equality in voting rights and employment opportunities and remuneration, which is still not in a reality in many places, should not be taken to imply such identity. And within marriage, the guideline is clear. The husband is to take the lead, though he is to do so fully mindful of the self-sacrificial model which Messiah has provided. As soon as taking the lead becomes bullying or arrogant, the whole thing collapses. Last paragraph from N.T. Wright. If this guideline seems outrageous in today's culture, we should ask ourselves, do our modern societies in which marriage is often a tragedy or a joke really offer a better model of how to do it? Does the specter of broken homes littering littering modern Western culture indicate that we've got it right and can tell the rest of human history how we finally resolved the battle of the sexes? Or does it indicate that we still need to do some rethinking somewhere? That from um, N.T. Wright's book, Paul for everyone. Listen, in the biblical view, submission is not the same as inferiority. I think that's really important. All we need to do is look at Jesus. He submitted himself to the will of the Father. He laid down his life for those he loved. And here, all spirit-filled husbands are called upon to be like Jesus, to lay down their lives for their wife. Submission within institutions, whether talking about within marriage as an institution or a citizen of a nation or a member of a church is good for the order of these uh, institutions. If our desire is to live in peace, we must respect the function and roles that God has set up. So we go back to God's creation design as the Apostle Paul did when he quoted there from Genesis chapter 2. Um, John Stott, in his commentary on this passage, says authority in biblical usage is not a synonym for tyranny. All those who occupy positions of authority in society are responsible both to God who has entrusted it to them and to the person or persons for whose benefit they have been given it. In a word, the biblical concept of authority spells not tyranny, but responsibility. Christ's headship is not about privilege and dominance. It's about self-giving love. The headship of Christ and therefore of spirit-filled husbands expresses servanthood, protection, provision, care, and concern rather than mere control. And this kind of headship takes up responsibility rather than demanding the right to have the final say in every little decision or choice. See, marriage is about oneness, as Genesis 2 that Paul quoted calls it one flesh. And it most certainly was a reference there to the most intimate physical expression of oneness, the sexual relationship designed to be enjoyed 
within the context of a lifelong marriage covenant of love between a husband and a wife. In marriage, see, I becomes we. Um, independent becomes interdependent. Each person seeking to enable the other to become more fully who God wants them to be. And one of my favorite books on marriage of all time is Tim and Kathy Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage. The uh, subtitle, I believe, is Finding Happiness in Your Most Profound Relationship. And I use this quote uh, every time I do a, a, a wedding ceremony. Um, these guys so beautifully uh, lived out and, and wrote about marriage. They said, in sharp contrast with our culture, the Bible teaches that the essence of marriage is a sacrificial commitment to the good of the other. That means that love is more fundamentally action than it is emotion. But in talking this way, there's a danger of falling into the opposite error that characterized many ancient and traditional societies. It is possible to see marriage as merely a social transaction, a way of doing your duty to family, tribe, and society. Traditional societies made the family the ultimate value in life. And so marriage was a mere transaction that helped your family's interest. By contrast, contemporary Western societies, <clears throat> excuse me, make the individual's happiness the ultimate value. And so marriage becomes primarily an experience of romantic fulfillment. But you see, the Bible sees God as the supreme good not the individual or the family. And that gives us a view of marriage that intimately unites feelings and duty, passion and promise. And that's because at the heart of the biblical idea of marriage is the covenant. It's not about self-fulfillment, as the Kellers would point out elsewhere in their book. It's about self-donation. That is, I contribute, my, I give away my life to the good of another. And that's really what the Apostle Paul is writing about here in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through 33. The highest uh, good, of course, is the glory of God for any person who's a Christian. And so he begins with that, let's be subject to one another in the fear of Christ, out of respect for Christ, out of the honor that we want to give and the glory that we want to give to Jesus Christ. We live out our relationships, including this marriage relationship. Uh, I really love the book of Ephesians. We got one more chapter to go. I'm so excited about the next chapter. But at the end of the day, this passage, especially uh, about human marriage relationship, carries forward the Christology, the soteriology, and the ecclesiology that have been the, the thematic center of Ephesians. That is, uh, to take those big words and break them down a little bit, the Christology that Jesus Christ is really at the center. Uh, soteriology is about salvation. So the saving grace of Christ is at work in our lives. And ecclesiology is really the study of the church. And so the unity of the church in the spirit, all of that has become clearer when the community of faith understands these and other family relationships that we'll study in the next chapter uh, in the context of the transforming power of the gospel of grace. Amen. Amen. Let me pray. Lord, thank you 
for the instruction we have here. Uh, thank you, Lord, for the inspiration that we have here. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you'll work in each and every one of our lives, um, that you'll turn our affections in the direction of Jesus in living our lives, whether married or single, um, whether parents or not, uh, whether employers or employees. Turn our affections in the direction of the honor and the glory of Jesus Christ. Thank you so much that you have given us the opportunity to live out the gospel in word and in deed among others who also want to do that in the community of faith, Lord. And so I pray that our churches, our families would all be strengthened as we all submit to Jesus, our King. In his name we pray, amen and amen. God bless you. Have a great one. Thanks for listening to today's study. Take a moment to leave a review and share this episode with friends and family. You can stay connected by signing up for our newsletter or follow us on social media. At the Village Chapel, we believe God's word is unique in its source, timeless in its truth, broad in its reach, and transforming in its power. For more resources or to support our ministry, visit our website, thevillagechapel.com.